Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last week, it emerged that the Northern Territory government settled a class action by detainees of the Dondale Detention Facility to the tune of $35 million. This news came as we marked five years since the announcement of a Royal Commission into the detention of young people in the NT. Part of those recommendations, you might remember, was to close Dondale, but the facility has remained open and is now set to expand. Beth Wilde is Managing Solicitor for Crime at the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, and to talk about these issues, she joins us on the line. Beth, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. So I understand the Northern Territory Government didn't want this figure of $35 million publicly revealed. What's your sense of, of the class action settlement and I guess what it means for those people who participated? Uh, I guess it's a vindication of the, the suffering that they went through whilst they were in Dondale. Uh, but it has to be said too that that money is no, uh, it's not going to be proper reparation for the damage that's likely to have been done to these um, kids while that they were incarcerated in Dondale. I mean, how long did the the legal process take, uh, Beth? I mean, I, I guess um, people maybe across the country only heard of Dondale for the first time because of that Four Corners report that led to a royal commission, and then we've seen this class action take take place. How long has the legal process taken? Uh, so I wasn't part of the uh, the civil action, uh, but it, it's likely to have been from. Um, close to the close of the Royal Commission to now. So a, a number of years, perhaps two to three years, that class action's been, and then settled out of court. Yeah, and, and I mean, on the, the matter of Dondale itself, I mean, those who haven't necessarily followed this issue closely might have expected that the facility, you know, had closed or would be set to close mm. soon. But there's news now that it's set to expand, uh, presumably to cater for, you know, potentially a larger prison population. Why is it that it's remained open? Uh, I think uh, there's been a number of factors. One has been that we haven't, uh, the government was unable to to find another site that it would have been um, uh, that they could put the facility in. People uh, were protesting about having it in their backyard, as it was seen to be a risk or devalued property in any area. So they weren't ever able to to get that place sorted. In the end, they settled on. Um, out near the adult prison, which is uh, about a 40-minute drive out of Darwin in a very uh, deep rural uh, block. But as far as I'm aware, works have never started on building that facility, which had its own controversies. In the meantime, we're seeing a, a law and order campaign by both sides of the government um, really toughen the bail laws, which have meant that we've seen a, a spike in um, incarceration of children. Uh, and that's meant that Immediately, uh, Dondale now can't house the amount of children that they're um, that they're seeking to incarcerate. So we, they have to do immediate work on it. So it's very distressing to get to to this point after a royal commission, a successful settlement, acknowledging that it's not um, a safe place to have children. And really, I would think that. Um, it's very counterintuitive to remaining at this uh, facility. 
Perhaps yeah. if I can give it, yep. No, I was going to say, and then to have more children there potentially is, is as you say, counterintuitive and really incongruous to what we, under, yeah. you know, what came out of the Royal Commission. And, and I mean, the government, it seems, in the Northern Territory is address, you know, is saying, look, we, we implemented 158 of the 218 mm. recommendations, and I'm personally not close enough to it to know which, yep. which of the 57 haven't mm-hmm. been implemented. From where you are, Beth, I mean, are the 57 that haven't been implemented from the Royal Commission? Mission, the ones that really need to be in place, or what's the balance there? Yeah, yeah. Well, so the numbers, it doesn't really matter, does it? Which of those numbers that they have done, um, if we're not really seeing the benefit um, on the ground, and if we're seeing a spike in incarceration of really some very young children, uh, and a lot of the people we're seeing um, in prison are already um, in the care of the state. Um, so they're already with, um, they've been taken away from their parents and they're being looked after by the state who are unable to do it. Uh, so that, that's, the, that's the group of kids that we're seeing in custody at the moment. And I do want to give a bit of background about this Dondale facility because most, it wouldn't, most people wouldn't be able to picture it. But it, it's the old prison that was um, decommissioned, the old adult prison. Uh, it's... Um, a really horrible, scary place, uh, and it's just not suitable for kids. Uh, the, there's no learning in there, and there's really no um, suitable outdoor area for playing um, sports and being outside. Uh, and large areas of it have been decommissioned, which is what they want to spend the money on doing up again. Um, and that the girls' wing is um, also uh, a really horrible, scary place to be, and there's just no way you could conceive of bringing about rehabilitation in a place like this and that has to be our primary objective with kids uh, that we're really looking to the incarceration can't just be punishment because we want them to get back on the right track and this facility can't meet that demand and in fact it will um, make the kids worse, it'll re-traumatise them, that it will um, it's not ever going to place the kids um, on a, a better path yeah, and that's you know really distressing for anyone who remembers watching you know that Four Corners mm. episode five years ago. That might have been you know their only confrontation with the kinds of conditions young people were subjected to in in Dondale and facilities like it. But can you sort of I suppose help us understand how we've we've come from there to where we are now? Because we spoke to you a few months ago about mm. the toughening of bail laws in the Northern Territory and yeah. you know the prediction that there would be a spike in young people in detention facilities as a result of that. We see, you know, as you say, a kind of tough on crime agenda from from the opposition leader and and seemingly from the government up there as well. I mean, is there a sense that that people have kind of forgotten about the the real really traumatic experiences and and vision that we saw of Dondale that really, you know, shocked a lot of people around Australia? Yes, I think that it's easy to buy into this concept that um, our community isn't safe unless we're locking up this... um, a group of children who are offending. So the narrative has been able to develop that um, that these bail laws are only targeting a small cohort of recidivist offenders is what they've been um, putting in the, the, the media releases and so on. However, the bail laws go far, far beyond that and are actually getting first-time offenders because they've just been so broadly drafted that they're getting kids that might not have ever been found guilty of an offence and then they're placed on bail, they might breach a condition such as a curfew, which is a 
serious breach of bail, um, and then they're, they're incarcerated. So they might never have been found guilty of anything and then find themselves in Dondale, uh, and very difficult then to get them out on bail. Now, that actually should be a time where we're looking at diverting kids from the system so that they don't become entrenched. So that there doesn't seem to be any really counterpoint to the um, the idea that that's getting out. If we've got both sides of government agreeing with each other on this, then it just becomes people like me um, that are the lawyers in the space that are um, very easy to, to criticise as not being in touch with the everyday community member that's a victim of crime. We're very easily silenced. Well, we're not going to silence you on Triple R, Beth. Um, Beth Wilds with us. She's Managing Solicitor of Crime at NAJA, the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency. And we're talking about um, youth detention in the Northern Territory, Dondale in particular, which um, was set to close but now is being expanded as youth detainee numbers are on the rise. And, I mean, can we go to the age of incarceration, um, Beth? Because I think my understanding is it's pretty consistent around the, the country that children aged 10 and older can be in imprisoned um, in every state and territory, I understand. And, and look, there is a push for Australia to be in line with uh, the international ex- expectation, which is that um, that we wouldn't imprison people um, younger than 14. How is that yeah. campaign sort of happening? I know that's happening at the grassroots mm-hmm. as well. Is that getting any yeah. traction at all in the Northern Territory? Uh, I don't think there's a strong appetite for it. Uh, we're, we're, we're doing our best to advocate, and the response seems to... And, in fact, we're not even asking for 14 up here. We're trying to be realistic about it and say, look, at least it has to be 12. Um, you can't have 10-year-olds locked up. Uh, and the response we, we seem to be getting from that is, oh, look, we don't really lock up the 10-year-olds anyway. But it can and does happen. We do get 10-year-olds locked up. I think there's a couple in um, recently in our spring, some 10-year-olds who have been incarcerated. So just be, it's not good enough to say, oh, look, we, we don't do that anyway. There's no 10-year-olds because 10- and 11-year-olds do get incarcerated and they can be. So that really needs to change. And I think the ACT is the only one that's really um, going to up the age to 14 and that's really commendable when, and you can... It's something that can be easily done and the community will um, move with you. I think that they're not... The government isn't being brave about it. It's bowing down to pressure of some some groups without bringing the education um, of the community with them. And when most people think about their 10-year-olds and what they were like when they were 10, they're they're very young children that should be supported and cared for and shown the right path and not not put in prison and not put in a place like Dondale. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's we, we've had a Royal Commission into youth detention in the NT. We've got you know this campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility that a, a range of organisations and and um, you know international organisations as well are behind. And you know we've got the close the gap refer- refresh and justice targets included as part of that as well. But then you know we see this toughening of, of laws and an expansion of a detention facility mm-hmm. in the Northern Territory. I mean, is there any, any sense that that momentum can sort of build towards any substantial change? in the NT? Uh, it's hard to see at this stage. I mean, there have been some good things that have come out of the Commission and we do have some supported bail accommodation. Um, there's some other community-based programs and the government's really trying to work through those on almost um, 
as a sideline issue and they're not there at the pieces that they're talking to the community about so much uh, because it doesn't get a huge amount of popularity. So there are some things happening on the side. But if we're, if we're going to go down a path of um, incarcerating children, that we are going to see um, really negative ongoing effects from that because we'll have a, a group of kids that are really entrenched in the criminal justice system and they'll graduate from, the, um, from youth detention to adult prison. Uh, now, that, that is a very... It comes at a very expensive cost to the whole of the community if we've um, if we've got offenders um, that are going to be heading along that path rather than being contributing members to the community. Now, this is the opportunity when they're kids is to turn it around and to really invest in them. And in, we're investing in them. We're pouring lots of money in it, but it's in all the wrong areas. And what a shame. Um, Beth, keep up the good work. And um, thanks again for speaking with us on 3RRR. Thank you for having me. Beth Wild, she's Managing Solicitor for Crime at NAJA, the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency. And, yeah, a, a lot of uh, things happening there in the Northern Territory, but I, I would say that if we look astra- around Australia, we see similar um, moves to being tough on crime and it'll be good to have a look again of what happens in Victoria. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And the anti-lockdown protests that were rumoured to be planned for Sydney over the weekend didn't happen. Um, But there is a lot of action online around these things. And Jeff Sparrow has been tracking these or at least taking a look. And he's on the phone to tell us more about who the protesters are and what is spurring them on. And Jeff, uh, it's great to have you there. Good morning. Good morning to you two. How are you both going? Yeah, pretty Good. well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, we haven't been hanging out online <laughs> trying to understand anti-lockdown protests, so we've got... Like, the... <laughs> Mental health is in a pretty good state. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it's really important that we um, un- understand or at least have a look at, at what's going on. I guess if, you know, people were on their phones on the weekend rather than being out walking in the sun or something, they might have seen pictures of the New South Wales police force um, out in force, um, the ADF as well. How serious were those rumours that another anti-lockdown protest might happen? Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? You would have thought that the police and the security agencies would have had better information than they did to have, you know, misjudged whether or not the events were actually going to take place. But I think a lot of people were surprised by the previous demonstrations, both in Sydney and in Melbourne, at just how large they were. You know, because we'd seen anti-lockdown protests during the Melbourne lockdown, but they'd been fairly small and it felt when we saw those considerable demonstrations, not just in Melbourne, Sydney, but throughout Australia, indeed throughout the world, that something had shifted. And I think it's quite important to think through this because I think that's the what we're beginning to see is a new movement coalescing around the anti-lockdown um, stuff in, in a way that I think will have consequences in the months ahead. And from where you sit, Jeff, do you have a sense of, of to what extent there's, you know, any anyone or, or group of people who are coordinating these? Because I understand from, from some things I've read that there's a German-based group called, I think, Worldwide Demonstration who's been sort of playing in ro- a role in these kinds of actions across the world. But is that the case in Australia? Yeah, look, so there are certain groups, and in some cases groups might be too generous uh, a, a, a 
term because we're not necessarily talking about organisations with memberships or anything like that. And a lot of the Australian protests have been coordinated through, say, particular Facebook uh, groups or Telegram channels as much as um, anything. I guess what really struck me was having a look at, at some of the social media sites that were promoting the um, anti-lockdown demonstrations was just how much this had now become a honeypot for conservatives, conservatives generally. So not just not just the far right, although it's clear that there are various um, fascist and semi-fascist groups that are trying to recruit and promote out of the anti-lockdown stuff, but it's really striking how much um, figures from the right in general are now flocking to the anti-lockdown sentiment. So if you scroll down the Telegram sites, you see the same sort of names um, you know, popping up again and again, the sort of Milo Yiannopoulos, the various people from Sky News, but also the the organisers are quoting various Liberal Party members, you know, the Andrew Bolt, and increasingly um, all of these figures that had previously been associated with other campaigns around, you know, climate change denial or whatever, are seeing an opportunity in the anti-lockdown stuff. And so that's why I think it's it's worth thinking about because it's clear now this has become a kind of cultural war issue and, you know, that um, it's become a place that the right generally thinks out of which it, it can recruit out of. Yeah, and I mean, can you talk a little bit more about how these sorts of issues become conflated, Jeff? Because I, I wonder, I mean, there's a whole lot of words, I guess, like that anti-vax, 5G, whatever it might be, do they all become conflated or, or, or how does that actually play out? Well, that's a really interesting question, Kalia, because when you look at the sites promoting this stuff, there is no coherency to it at all. So within the same groups, you'll see people arguing that um, COVID isn't real, but simultaneously COVID is a Chinese operation or that COVID is part of, you know, the Illuminati or, you know, so, so flatly contradictory positions being argued within the same space. And, you know, so, so the, these sites are full of um, QAnon-style conspiracies. Um, and I think that what is starting to happen is we are just seeing a kind of stew of various kinds of conspiracies coalescing in this space. And the fact that they don't make sense and the fact that they're contradictory isn't a problem for the, for the movement that's ensuing. So I think one of the really interesting aspects of this is, is it makes it really clear the extent to which conspiratorial thinking has become a business model for various people on the far right. So we're seeing, um, you know, uh, a whole bunch of people that had previously been propping up, been uh, agitating around other issues like climate change again is the, the obvious one, now seeing that there is money to be made from this stuff. And so when you scroll through these feeds, like what you'll see is everyone trying to get in as part of the action, whether it's, you know, right-wing YouTubers or whether it's Sky News talking heads, everyone sees there is a business opportunity 
made out of the insecurities around um, around COVID. And it doesn't really matter whether you have a coherent position or anything like that, as long as you can kind of tap into this angry sentiment, there's clearly money to be made and everyone wants a slice of the pie. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, there are, there are very good reasons for being suspicious of, of government. There's, you know, endless stories of, of vested interest kind of um, playing a role in determining certain policy outcomes. There's, you know, most recently the kind of car parks wrought scheme and, and we know the role that lobby being plays in the sort of revolving door of politicians going into cushy jobs when they leave Parliament. But it kind of feels You're good like... At that, Dylan. <laughs> What's that? Rolling off the... Oh, all of them, yeah, the, yeah. the whole lot. No, yeah, but it's let me so get a bit true. conspirational for a moment. <laughs> um, but, but so there is this, this, you know, justifiable lack of trust, I suppose, in our elected leaders always acting in our best interest. But do you see that as in any way feeding the, the, the tendency for some people to go down these kind of rabbit warrens of conspirational thinking because there's a broader distrust in, in our governing class? Oh, definitely. I think, that, I think that's really, really clear. I mean, insofar as there's a common theme linking, you know, the, the, the posts on these channels, it is that sense that you cannot trust anyone and the government doesn't have, you know, our best interests at heart and we are being lied to somewhere. Now, it's important to put this up in perspective. So there was some polling that was done um, a week or so ago, a week or so ago by Uting Research that they do polling for the Labor Party. And they found that just 7% of the Australian population supported these demonstrations, with 83% opposed. So they're not a tremendously popular phenomenon, but 7% of the population is still... It's still not nothing... Um, particularly given how extreme some of the, the claims are. And I, I think it's useful to think about the way that the anti-lockdown stuff fits in with a culture war more generally. I mean, if you, if you think about the way lockdowns have been experienced and the kinds of people who have had relatively good lockdowns, well, you know, you think about people who are in relatively well-off jobs, managerial roles, or alternatively, people who work in white-collar industries. They're able to work at home. They're not massively affected. And for them, the lockdown isn't necessarily uh, a big deal. I think what we see with the anti-lockdown protests is a quite different kind of constituency. So, so say, people who work in small business, you know, um, tradespeople, or alternatively, a subsection of people who work in blue-collar, um, blue-collar working-class jobs who are far more affected by, you know, not being able to work, um, you know, not being pay- able to... Uh, uh, and not being able to work from home in the same kind of way. And so you can see how there is a constituency um, for this stuff, and that constituency overlaps with the culture war generally. So the same kinds of people who will who might be suspicious of, say, political correctness gone mad or, you know, um, cultural Marxists or whatever... Um, are likely to be the same sort of people who are susceptible to a notion that, you know, your boss is able to survive a lockdown okay, and no wonder they're, you know, going on about COVID virus, but you and me, we're the ones who are suffering. So you can see how it sort of taps into the same sort of 
um, hostility of, you know, um, the inner city elite and all, 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 all the rest of it. And that's why I think it is going to be such a fertile ground for a certain kind of far-right populist. And I wonder too, um, we're speaking with Jeff Sparrow and um, really having a look at the anti-lockdown protests and, and really getting a sense of whether a movement is being established here, not just in Australia, but globally. And I mean, really to go to what, what Dylan was, was talking about, this this sort of grain of truth somewhere in some of the conspiracy th- theories that we have out there. And it's is it just far right, Jeff, that is... Um, is in there or overlapping? Because I, I guess, you know, there um, are those that are really into sort of health, I guess, that might think of themselves on the left that um, people have popped up and made some comments from, from maybe that, that that kind of part of the political spectrum, if you call it that. Um, those that are sort of scared of the AstraZeneca vaccine, looking for reasons to back up their, their emotional response. Uh, yeah, the, is there other overlaps happening as well that maybe could, as you say, with a small business that we could unpack and try and deal with some of the kind of legitimate concerns that are being pulled into to what is potentially a movement, as you say? Yes, it's definitely making inroads into uh, the kind of alternative health uh, sphere and, you know, the posts are full of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, um, People who are, you know, suspicious of uh, of Western medicine or into natural healing or whatever—it's definitely making inroads into that um, into that sphere in particular. At the same time, the general direction of these uh, of these protests and and the rhetoric around them is clearly to the right and the far right. So, um, almost as soon as anybody enters that sphere, they they come into contact with. Uh, conspiracy theories and conspiracy theories which push in the usual direction of those conspiracy theories. So there's a, you know, um, the targeting of the sinister elites who run the world. There's a vein of anti-Semitism that runs through those kinds, um, those kind of arguments. And so, you know, I think the people who will make the most gains out of this will be um, the far right. But again, like I said there's clearly now a business model for exploiting this. I mean, we just saw, for instance, that, um, that Sky News has got kicked off um, YouTube mm. for promoting, you know, anti-vaccine stuff. Well, why do they do that? Well, they, they do that because, you know, it gets engagement, doesn't it? It's that, that there, is a, there is an audience for it. It riles people up. You can sell stuff for it, from it, and... Um, you know, the social media platforms work in the same kind of way. That you know that this kind of stuff generates um, good engagement, and so there's a there's there's a market for it. And I think it's going to continue to kind of bubble on, particularly in New South Wales now, as the lockdown there um, drags on. I mean, I mean, I was just saying on 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 Twitter today. It seems to me that there is, in some respects, quite an opportunity opening up for the Labor Party here given that there is, it's clear now that there's a, 
sizable portion of the Liberal Party membership who is sympathetic to this stuff. That's an interesting um, point, I think, because I, I read George Christensen's comments at one of the rallies he attended in Queensland, where he basically, you know, encourages civil disobedience, and it, you know, reminded me of, of Trump kind of giving a effectively the go ahead to um, to the, you know, the capital storming and and similar sentiment um, that was you know, you know galvanising uh, support for him based on kind of conspirational thinking and so on. Do you think this does present difficulties for the Morrison government to grapple with these MPs and Craig Kelly as well, who, you know, now is an independent, who are sort of flirting or, or actively courting the, the movement that seems to be developing around anti-lockdown sentiment? Yes, definitely, particularly if the Labor Party goes after them on it because Morrison is dependent on these votes and it was, you know, it was notable that he was very reluctant to uh, to discipline, even to criticise um, Christensen because he can't afford to get these people offside. But also, um, if you look at the figures on, on um, YouTube popularity, Christensen and Kelly are all over YouTube. They're some of the biggest um, biggest levels of engagement of any politicians on YouTube. On YouTube. And I think that indicates that there's a sizable... Um, proportion of the Liberal Party activists who are actually into this stuff. And, you know, I think Morrison faces a problem that um, if he condemns these people, that there is likely to be pushback within um, the Liberal Party. I mean, it's an, it's an utterly unhinged situation. Christensen is essentially saying that the government that people should protest against the government of which he is a part. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> no sense at all. And But, see, you know, it's an even bigger bigger problem for, for, for Morrison because, you know, the official line he's got to run is that, you know, lockdowns are good and he supports them and, you know, and so on. But that is anathema to, you know, people, not, 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 not just, um, not just uh, people on the fringes as well. It's anathema to people like the Institute for Public Affairs. It's all about, you know, opening up the economy. So there, there are real divisions in Australian conservatism over this stuff. And, you know, if, if the Labor Party were able to do it, I would have thought that um, it could really cause Morrison some um, problems going forward because at the moment he, there's a sense in which he's trying to walk both sides, both sides of the line at the same time and, and not taking a firm stand against, you know, the really irresponsible and dangerous behaviour of people like Christensen and Kelly. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, Jeff, uh, most people uh, are appalled by the protests or at least really concerned about what might result, particularly in places where the Delta virus is in the community and spreading. Do you think that uh, like a huge police presence and with also with um, army on the streets, do you think it helps or, or hinders the anti-lockdown thinking? Um, I think that, you know, sending the army into the streets, trying to respond to a health crisis with police or worse still, the military, is absolutely disastrous. I mean, you know, there are people in Western Sydney who don't want to go to work, they don't want to have to, you know, risk their lives in the midst of a pandemic, but if they're not being resourced adequately, if they're not, you know, getting payments that allow them to, to, to stay on to stay home, well, they will do what anyone 
would do, which is that they will try to earn money to, to you know, to pay their rent and look after their family, and that risks spreading the virus. So it seems, it seems to me the best way to address these movements, to, to, the best way to fight these movements is to address the real concerns that are out there around the pandemic and, you know, to provide resources that allow people to isolate safely, that, you know, um, make it as easy as possible to get the vaccine, you know, to do all of the sensible things that are necessary in a, in the health crisis. And, you know, this, this insistence on getting the army in, it's just a publicity stunt. It's, you know... The army—you can't send an army to fight a virus, um, but it's just that you know governments feel they have to be seen to be you know taking a, a firm hand, and you know nothing says that in Australia like the men in uniform to parade around, and you know so that's the direction they they, they always go. But yes, I think you're right. I think the the consequences of that will be disastrous. Absolutely. Well, um, well, lots to think about. It's, uh, it's so great having your insights and, and helping us to make sense of all this stuff that's going on, Jeff. Um, thanks so much, and we'll uh, catch you again next time. Thanks. Pleasure. See you guys. Bye, Jeff. Cheers. Bye. Jeff Sparrow there, of course, um, uh, RRR alumni, RRR broadcaster, also a columnist with The Guardian and lecturer at the University of Melbourne, talking all about the anti-lockdown protesters and, and uh, where he sees the movement kind of uh, emerging from and where it might go next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.